Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today City Council has delayed its decision to allow retail pot shops in Hamilton. It's been a hectic 24 hours for President Trump, and there are still some concerns over the new Kuzma trade deal. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we told you yesterday on the program, it was an active day at Hamilton City Hall. We knew that there was going to be a special meeting and they were going to talk about cannabis shops and whether or not we should opt in or opt out. And there were a number of delegations that appeared before the uh, the council that particular day. Uh, we opined at the time that uh, they're probably going to kick this down the road until the new year to give it more time. And after about eight hours of debate, that's certainly what they did. I don't know that they resolved anything or solved anything yesterday, but uh, it's still an active debate. Uh, a couple of the councillors, more than a couple actually, said, look, it's, we need to hear from the public on this. First of all, though, I want to bring uh, Brad Clark into the conversation, the councillor for Ward 9, uh, who obviously was at the meeting yesterday. Brad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, and thank you. Did we resolve anything yesterday? Did, did, did we get more information? I mean, that, you know, eight hours is an awfully long time to be spinning the same five or six talking points. I think we received a lot of information from the delegates um, and some from staff. There is still information that's missing, which is the actual cost to enforcing and shutting down the illegal market. Um, and uh, we didn't have a prediction or a projection on what the increase in tax base would be. So there's still more information that, that needs to be provided. Uh, did you send staff away to bring that information back to you? Yes, that was the intention of the deferral motion, as well as asking the public to, to or giving the public an opportunity uh, to participate in a consultation, an online survey. Um, so that's the intention of the deferral motion. And, and how is this going to be framed? I mean, who's going to put this together? Is it going to be a simply, do you opt in or opt out? I mean, is that a yes or no? Is that really an up and down question? I honestly don't know. I would hope that the staff would provide some background on the survey and then ask the question. Um, it is a little bit complicated because the, the way the opting in is working is automatically any municipality gets a portion of $15 million dollars. So ours was 574000 Now, if we opt in, the next phase of that funding is a share of $15 million to those municipalities who opted in. So the share would be a little bit larger. And then in two years' time, if the excise tax exceeds $100 million to the province, then 50% of that excess would be shared with, with the municipalities. So... The challenge that I was faced and many were faced is that regardless of whether we opt in or out, all of the enforcement costs, all of the, the police work and bylaw enforcement will happen and we will be paying those costs. And if we opt out, we won't have any access to additional revenue other than our tax base. Isn't there an argument to be made, Brad, that you're already incurring those costs now? We Some are. of them anyway? Uh, Absolutely, absolutely, Bill, we are. Those costs are happening right now without the assistance from the province. Um, and I understand the argument that the province should be, be providing additional funding because of the, the desire to shut down the black market of, of um, cannabis uh, sellers, um, but they're not doing that. And so we have to play with the cards that we were given. And in this case, if we opt in, we get additional money to help us in that regard as well as the tax base. And I should point out that if we opt in, we're giving our residents an opportunity to purchase from legal retail stores, whereas if we opt out and they can't get out of town for whatever reason, then they'll be buying from the black market. 
which obviously some people are doing right now. And that, that's why I couldn't really get my head around the argument that some of your colleagues were making yesterday that, uh, you know, if we opt out, then, you know, it, it was a financial thing. But, I mean, th- there is another course here that to, fo- to be followed, and that is the black market. If we say we don't want this in here, they, that, I'm sure if, if I'm running a black market operation right now for cannabis, Brad, I'm, I'm rubbing my hands with glee saying, thanks a lot, City Council. You, you, you just made my customer base more solid. Uh, I agree. If we opt out of the program and we don't allow for legal retail cannabis operations in Hamilton, then I think the black market folks will be dancing in the streets because it really opens up their avenue completely, whether or not they have a storefront or not. Um, But for many people who don't have the ability to get out of town and back, uh, they'll be looking to the black market to to purchase their cannabis, which I think is, is... unfair. There's another side to this, too, that, that I know a couple of your colleagues made a point of yesterday, uh, and, and it's about money. We get that. And look, at you, you, you've been in provincial government, you've been in municipal government for a number of years now, Brad. There, there isn't an issue out there that, that, that where a local council is not going to say we should be getting more money for this. Of course they should, from either the feds or the province. That's, that's an ongoing argument, but the reality is it doesn't always happen just because you hold your breath and say we're not going to do this until you give us more money. Uh, th- th- there's a, a financial reality here, too, that you may not like the amount that's out there, but that's what's on the table right now. Yeah, and, and I argue that if we opt into the program and we receive the funding um, uh, as we move forward, we're in a better position to argue to the provincial government, listen, we opted into your program that you put in place, and we have now found that we ha- are incurring additional costs in this matter. I think they'd be much more receptive to that argument and looking at additional funding for such municipalities who opt in than if we opt out and complain that we're not getting enough funding. It it just seems you're better off in the tent is the old adage, and and in this case I think it holds true. Well, and again, the line of thought from some people was, look at if if a lot of us opt out, and and there are quite a few municipalities that have said, no, we don't want to be a part of this, at least in the initial stages anyway. Uh, that that would put the province over a barrel. I, I don't think the province cares one way or another whether you in or opt in or opt out. They're going to uh, issue these licenses anyway. Uh, you're you're 100% correct. At least I agree. Um, <laughs> if we opt out, the online cannabis sales for, for the province continues, and eventually they'll get the, the um, right amount of product, and so there won't be long wait, line, wait times. But the challenge is, in order to buy online, our residents have to use a credit card and many people are concerned about doing that. And so if you want to buy cannabis with cash, then in Hamilton, if we opt out, you'd only be able to buy it from the black market. So we're putting our residents in the unenviable position of either paying with a credit card online, going to another municipality or participating in the black market, which is illegal. Did you get the sense uh, as as the day went on, and, and this I want to maybe focus on some of the council uh, debate and dialogue that was going on, that that some of the concerns, some of the opposition, I guess is one way to characterize it, uh, was based on moral grounds and 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 kind of getting away from what the real purpose of that meeting was. I mean, the province has already made a decision, the federal government's already made a decision about the legality of this substance. It, it seems frivolous to be debating that now. I did get that sense from uh, a few of my colleagues. I I won't mention names, but it it did appear to me that a few were more concerned about the idea of cannabis in general, that they've never supported cannabis sales, um, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I think it's there, but I think as the discussion is unfolding, they're starting to realize more and more that it's really not a philosophical debate as to whether or not cannabis should be legalized because it has been legalized. It is now a legal product, and we as a municipality have the responsibility to make sure that we're making decisions based on the fact that it is legal um, and not our personal objections to the, the product. Well, and the reality here is, that, I mean, there are elements of the industry right here in this community now uh, that have been there for some time, some medical marijuana, but I mean, you know, we've already heard from a number of organizations right now that are into expansion mode. I mean, this there there is an economic side. I know that Keenan Loomis from the Chamber tried to bring that to people's attention, but uh, you can't be dismissive of that. I don't necessarily think it's the cash cow that some people think it's going to be, but it is going to create jobs. Um, I think if you looked at the cannabis market overall, I think it's going to be a significant industry in the long term. And, and even the federal provincial uh, or the federal uh, budget officer uh, was talking about the amount of use. And, and we're talking, you know, five, six million people utilizing cannabis um, in, the, in the next couple of years annually. That's a significant market in any retail operation. Um, and and they've pointed out that in in Ontario, thirty-eight uh, percent of all cannabis use in the country will be in Ontario, and we already know that Hamilton has this very high marketplace because we've seen you know eighty, ninety stores, uh, illegal dispensaries operating, uh, and in some cases with impunity. So we know the market is there in Hamilton. I think we should be making the right decisions making sure that it is legal and try to shut down these black market operations. If nothing else, out of the, the abundance of caution for the safety of the product, we want to make sure that the product that people are purchasing um, is a sound product and a safe product. You know, and the cost is always going to be a concern. I get that. And and it's kind of hard to get a handle on that, uh, really. And I think you guys talked about that yesterday, because uh, there are policing costs, and some of the costs are already happening now with enforcement. There's bylaw. There's a number of things that are coming into play here. But if it is insufficient, and, and I'll, I'll ask you to rely on your, your ministerial experience when you were in government in Queen's Park, Brad, if a, if a community comes back and says, look, these costs are killing us, uh, you got to give us more. If, if, if you've opted out, my first answer to you is, well, if you'd opted into the program, you could have mitigated these costs. But if it's somebody who's already opted in and said, look, we're trying to work within your framework, but it's not working, I think you've got their ear. I agree. Um, I think um, the spokespeople for the government have pretty much made it clear to to other municipalities who have opted out and complained about the cost um, that um, there is a a program in place to assist municipalities who opt in, um, and not to and we can't forget that there will be a significant increase in commercial tax base because these are companies that will be operating retail environments and paying local property taxes on those stores. So all of that envelope, when you take it into consideration, I think it's better to have that revenue available to us to deal with the enforcement issues than to opt out and take none of that revenue and put all of the costs on the backs of the local taxpayers. Very quickly, I know we're getting a short time here, and I do want to go to the phone calls. I'm going to get other people's opinions on this. Uh, one of the other concerns that was raised was radial separation, and, and I know that council's got some concerns about that. I've talked to a number of your colleagues over the last couple of weeks about that. Uh, the provincial guideline is, I think it's, uh, it, it, well, it works out to about 165 yards uh, as, as radial separation. Are you comfortable with that? I asked the question what the radial separation was for LCBO stores or uh, brewer retails. 
and there is no radio separation. I asked if there was a radio separation for local neighborhood bars where people are coming out intoxicated and walking right past the school, and there is no radio separation. So if we're talking about a legal product, and in this case the province has said 150 metres from schools, I think that's actually better than what we currently have for other legal products that intoxicate people. Well, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, when I know when our kids were younger and they were going to, to elementary school, I mean, there's a variety store right across the road selling cigarettes, and I, that made me uncomfortable because I don't know whether or not they're selling them to minors. You hope not. The law says not. But uh, this, the, the restrictions within a cannabis store are much more restrictive, I guess, and, and prescriptive as to who can actually go through the door. Uh, and and the, the Alcohol Gaming Commission are the ones that are responsible for enforcing those regulations, and they do it now for the LCBO and Brewers Retail, so I expect no different for cannabis. And, and 165 yards, that's block and a half, almost two blocks away, uh, So mm-hmm. just so people can put that in perspective. All right, yep. where, where's this going to go? Are, you guys are going to try to have another meeting on this. I mean, the, the clock is ticking here. You don't have a whole lot of time after the, you get into the new year to actually get a decision on this. Well, today, Council has an opportunity to ratify the deferral motion, uh, which means that if Council votes in favor of the ratification, um, we will defer it to January 14th for a final decision, which would make the decision timely with regards to the deadline. Um, If it is not ratified, then all bets are off. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, we'll see what happens uh, later on this afternoon when uh, Council meets uh, to determine this. Brad, thanks as always. appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. That's uh, Brad Clark, of course, counselor for Ward 9 uh, in Upper Stony Creek. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It uh, was a hectic 24 hours for U.S. President Donald Trump yesterday. First, Michael Flynn's sentencing was delayed. And boy, there's a story to that. Uh, Then news broke that the Trump Foundation was going to be shut down over allegations of illegality. Then it was revealed that the U.S. president actually did sign a letter of intent to build a a hotel tower, a business tower in Moscow, uh, despite denials by the president on a number of times and, of course, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Laura Babcock, uh, president of Power Group. What a day. Oh, my goodness. And you can tell how terribly bad a day it was for President Trump because he just unleashed a tweet storm. I'm just catching it up in the last two minutes, uh, calling the attorney general a sleazebag in New York and that the new one who's threatened to investigate him aggressively is uh, just a ranting and raving. So he is is now um, unleashing how he feels about his foundation being shut down. And if you look at what we heard yesterday, Bill, just in terms of all the things that the investigators the AG said to the, they basically said, we want the, sh- the foundation shut down under court supervision. We don't want the Trump family to be on a charitable board for a decade. It was essentially just a check cashing scheme. There was no... They were using it as an ATM. They'd never met as a board, not since 1999, one time or something. Uh, they were sort of floating all the rules around charitable donations. I can't imagine how many civil lawsuits might just land on the Trump family over this. Uh, and because just imagine you gave money in good faith and he was just sort of repurposing it to buy stuff. And he, I think the, the kind of justification is, well, as long as I was buying portraits of myself, <laughs> you know, it's okay. I mean, it is, it is just 
shameful. The level of illegalities happening with that so-called charity makes, I think, Trump University pale in comparison. So it was a it was a bad day. He has a tweet saying that he would never ever settle the law, you know, any kind of action about the foundation because it was. Uh, but we know that's a lie. He well, settled everyone. Well, not only did he, he didn't have the option to settle here. He had to totally capitulate. Uh, and so he has capitulated on that. He's had to. And so you have that happening. And then you have, of course, what happened. The court yesterday was was something out of a movie. Just when I thought that the Russia thing might be getting tired or too complex, yesterday was like the final scene in, in A Few Good Men or something. It was unbelievable. Um, and so I think that, you know, quantity has its own quality. One by one, you can come up with some sort of rationale or some sort of, you know, reduction theory around why some of these cases, these 17 cases against him and and counting, uh, don't seem to matter. They're just this or that. They're petty. They're blah, blah. They're partisan. But all of them together creates its own quality, which is this is a president who is besieged. And as you and I talked about last time, people are, are comfortably referring to them now as the Trump crime family. They are comfortably using a mafia, you know, sort of frameworks to describe what's been going on. Uh, this is damaging not just to their brand, but civilly, federally, state um, lawsuits. I mean, I don't see them out of this out of this for 20 years. So many frustrations yesterday, though, mm-hmm. uh, and we we saw what happened in court with Michael Flynn, and we, we'll get into a little more detail about that with uh, with uh, Judge Sullivan. Uh, but one of the narratives, of course, that was going on, and this happened a couple of days before this, was uh, it was uh, Flynn's team, including the lawyers and including Trump himself, saying that uh, that Flynn was coerced into this, he was pressured into this, that he's not really guilty. Uh, and and Judge Sullivan actually addressed that while Flynn was under oath yesterday to guide him to answer this. But two hours later, Sarah Sanders is there in the White House saying the same narrative, despite the fact that there was sworn testimony that all that stuff was BS. I, I know, I know. As, as as a consultant, you're always saying stay on message. But when the message has been refuted, mm-hmm. they still do it, and people buy it. I mean, the the Fox News guys were going crazy about this yesterday. So a couple of things on that. Um, so Flynn had had 19 meetings with Mueller. He apparently flipped and rolled on Trump immediately uh, once he was fired back in January of 2016. So he's been giving some goods for two years, 19 interviews, etc. Uh, so Mueller had recommended that Flynn get no sentence, essentially, because he'd been so helpful. His lawyers made such a ridiculous mistake, and all I can guess at, because I'm guessing, uh, just from a communications point of view... The president wanted his base to like Flynn because he intended to pardon Flynn. And as long as Flynn is a martyr and a victim, that bo- you know that boosts their victim narrative and their conspiracy narrative that this is all a big witch hunt, right? And so, in order to feed you know the um, propaganda machine that is Fox Primetime, not the day shows, guys like Shep and others have some some integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in order to feed that narrative. They had to have some sort of sense that Flynn was still being victimized and Trump, therefore, victimized by Mueller. So Flynn's lawyers put out this ridiculous statement saying that he was tricked by the FBI. I mean, this is the guy who led intelligence in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? He is the guy who knew more about how intelligence collecting and and legal stuff works in the U.S. than almost anybody. There's no way he would be tricked by the FBI. It's not even within the realm of the laughable. But they needed to have something to promote that conspiracy of victimhood. So what did they do? The lawyers put out this statement. Trump went to town on it. All of the people uh, on Fox were saying, oh, you know what? The judge is going to throw the book at Mueller. This witch hunt is going to be revealed. Flynn was tricked. 
when they got into court, the judge is like, hello, excuse me. So I'm supposed to not give you a sentence or jail time, even though I've seen the redacted stuff here, which he said, could you have been charged with treason? Because he's seen the goods that we haven't seen, right? It's pretty mm-hmm. significant. Yeah. Um, and he said, and you're now, so either you, either you think you're guilty of lying to the FBI or this lawyer's memo says that you were tricked, but it can't be both. Not in my court, right? I'm paraphrasing here. And then he said, you know, you've essentially sold out the country. You've betrayed everything that this flag represents. And I'm not going to promise you're not going to go to jail. Right. And, and they said that the atmosphere in the courtroom had been sort of a cocktail party until he said that. And then Flynn and his lawyers realized they were in deep trouble because it doesn't matter what Trump puts out there or Fox News says. The courts are the courts and the judge has power. And he's like, I'm not buying any of it. And you can't have it both ways. It, it was interesting as, as he went on. And uh, obviously, Judge Sullivan was very candid in, in, in a number of his comments. Uh, and even suggested that in, in a previous case, uh, D- David Petraeus, who's the former mm-hmm. head of the CIA and, and former joint of the, jo- head, of the, head of the Joint Chief Staff, too, uh, he got zero. And he said, if that was my court, he would he'd be in jail. Right. So that kind of set the tone for the morning, didn't it? And he'd also gone after. So one of the things that a lot of the Fox pundits were saying was that this particular judge, a Reagan appointee, a Republican judge, you know. It's, and by the yeah. way, just on that point, isn't mm-hmm. that tragic? That, that there's a judge who's who's making a ruling, and you have to qualify that and say he's not a Democrat. Right. He was appointed by Reagan and reappointed by George Bush. Well, they Bush. were hoping they were using that as to, as a cudgel. They were saying, you know what's going to happen? Uh, Mueller's team's going to get in front of this judge, and the judge is going to throw them out on their you know on their <laughs> butts and say, you know, you guys, this is prosecutorial, mis- you know, whatever. I'm not a lawyer, but basically, they were counting on the fact that this judge in the past has been tough on prosecutors. This was going to expose the entire witch hunt. This was going to prove the victimhood stuff. They were too cute by half with that memo. It obviously upset the judge. But again, on a substantive point of view, he saw what we didn't behind those big black redacted marker lines, right? And he saw it and thought, whoa, you have betrayed the country, right? So I think it was a shockwave to not only all of the the pundit class on the right to say whatever conspiracy you float out might actually backfire on your people when they get in front of the courts, but also a shockwave that said it doesn't, it actually is not just these tweets aren't just the ravings of a president. This, this stuff is not just, you know, for ratings. This stuff is actually being refuted and repudiated, and it is going to make everything worse for all of you who are in any way in part of any of these conspiracies, right? Or who are in any way part of the crimes. And so I think that when Sarah Sanders, to your point, got up, and tried to double down on what was not just a lie, but farcical after the evidence coming out of that judge's mouth. Uh, it was a sad moment. She was playing to an audience of one. And, um, I, you know, I think that's why MSNBC wouldn't even run the briefing that she was giving, because it was just beyond the pale. Well, and, and I'm hearing that more and more. The, some other commentators are suggesting the whole thing, that, that you know what, you're, you're enabling uh, this whole administration when you simply do that and give them the airtime. Well, it's like it, Baghdad which, Bob. It's like giving Baghdad Bob 20 minutes of air. Like, it's turning into that. Uh, you know, that it, it's so ridiculous, the spin. A, a federal judge just basically changed everything, and she's standing up there acting as though it didn't go the way that it went. It, and, and gaslighting is one thing, but that was just beyond the, the the message he left with Flynn, uh, and again, this is a guy you know, with three-star general, and as you, you've talked about his bona fides, and then Sean Hannity reminds us about it every night, that this mm-hmm. guy's an American hero, uh, which does not, by the way, give him a license to, to break the law, which is exactly mm-hmm. what he's admitted to doing now, not even accused, but admitted to doing. 
But but Judge Sullivan essentially said, you come back and you better be able to show me why you shouldn't go to jail. Mm-hmm. In other words, you go talk to Mr. Mueller again and you better do something that's really going to change my mind. Because I think he left them with the inference that, look, at, if I'm going to sentence you today, you're going to jail. Right. And he said, I can't even promise you if you go away for 90 days and help more that I won't then. Because he said, you know, he pointed to the flag to this to this veteran, to this American hero prior to his connection with Trump, uh, he basically said, you betrayed that flag, everything it stood for. You know, so he, he you know, your patriotic, even if you're not an American, your patriotic uh, hairs on your arms went up. It was a moment of, wow, someone speaking truth to this chaos, right? And so when when Flynn was apparently, there's that famous photo now of his chin down, like literally hanging in shame. And so he has got to go back and he has got to provide more. He has got to satisfy the judge that he's worthy of any kind of essential redemption, right? Or forgiveness here. But the other thing that I thought was so important is if the, if the president is tweeting in the morning, good luck, buddy, in court, uh, the judge has a reasonable, probably thought that, hey, if I sentence him to something like a couple of weeks, he's going to get pardoned immediately. So why not leverage this guy, this guy who possibly, you know, was a traitor to our country? Let's leverage him even more and let's have him kind of crawl back and, and see whether or not he's really worthy. It was very powerful the, for, for, the, for justice. I know, I know you watched a lot of the coverage uh, mm-hmm. through the course of the day yesterday and a number of the, the former uh, federal prosecutors that were being interviewed by a number of different networks. Uh, which obviously they have knowledge of, of Judge Sullivan. He's been on the bench for quite some time. And they say what he did yesterday is not inconsistent with what he does. He has no tolerance at all for people that abuse high office. Right. And that's a wonderful message the world, allies around the world needed to hear, that whatever abuses we think are happening in this administration, there is an actual judicial check and balance branch that is doing its job. I mean, that was the takeaway. Whatever the 17 investigations are, whatever's going to happen to Trump and his family, and, you know, we're in this for 20 years, folks. This stuff's not going to go away anytime soon. You have the actual judicial branch, a federal judge, say, no, please, right? You you can't have it both ways. This stuff that you're saying is not incongruous with with the plea you're making. And, And by the way, I don't have to do anything. I'm going to do what I think is right under the law. Not what Mueller wants, not what deal you have, not what powerful friends you have. You betray our country and commit these crimes, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And and that's amazing. And I think we all needed a reminder that the U.S. does have a, a robust a rule of law, right? And they're even questioning now that uh, memo from 2000 in the Justice Department about indicting a sitting president, because if it's shown that there were crimes that elected him, how can his presidency shield him from prosecution on those crimes? So I think they're in big trouble. Well, and, and I, I know the phrase closing in has been used more than once in the last couple of days, and I'm not so sure if that's the case. But them that we consider to be allies seem to be backing away. I mean, even John Roberts, who's the Chief Justice mm-hmm. of the Supreme Court, uh, when Trump tweeted a week or two ago about a Democratic judge, and he says, we do not have Democratic judges or Republican judges on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court of the, of the United States of America. Uh, a, a really stiff rebuke to the president basically said, you will get justice here, people dedicated to this. Uh, and I think we saw an example of that here yesterday. So what message does this send? There are, there are others in that inner circle that may well be in front of a, a magistrate like this in the not-too-distant future. The message that it sends is that uh, this Trump train that's had all this momentum and all of this seeming support and, and almost infallibility or, or it was immune to anything that we, many people around the world thought would would be natural checks. They're breaking all these norms and, you know, everything has been for many, many people completely chaotic and confusing for the last three years. And I think what this sent a message of is that, no, no, there are some clear thinkers. 
There are some people who have checks on that kind of power. And if you are going to continue to be a part of this Trump train, you better understand that I think, and this is my language, there's a tipping point that's been hit here. Uh, Things are tipping the other direction now. We saw it in the midterms. We saw it with this judge. We've seen it with all the Mueller indictment, everything coming out. You are no longer on the winning side. You are no longer on the side that can just steamroll past everybody. If you're going to be on this side, you're going to potentially pay a heavy consequence. And I think that's why his chief of staff job, he can't, still can't find a permanent chief of staff. Because who would want to be a part of that? They're no long, they no longer have momentum. The uh, the reality here is, is I know there are still some people that are looking at impeachment as the end game here, uh, and we've talked about that. That's never going to happen. I mean, the the House might impeach him. They may bring articles mm-hmm. of impeachment. It's never going to pass the Senate. Mm-hmm. So that's not the element. But now there are some rumors around Washington that I'm sure you've heard about resignation. Well, it was floated out by um, Chris Matthews on CNBC, could be wishful thinking, but also Joe Scarborough, who actually knows the president, has suggested that uh, he's at some point going to make a calculation that says uh, how much of, how worth it is it for me to stay here. So if you think about it, the idea of shielding himself from prosecution because he's the president or he has power to pardon, which in the Manafort case, et cetera, people might not testify, um, that doesn't apply to state. And if they seal indictments at the state level, it runs out the, you know, the statute of limitations. He's in deep trouble. So he either right now makes some sort of massive deal that satiates a whole bunch of people and starts to fight the civil litigation, or he continues to fight this, uh, do everything that he can, and possibly end up in, in serious jeopardy, him and his family and all his associates. I mean, it is just at that. You don't have to be a Trump hater or a Trump lover to understand that there are things happening that he cannot get out of. I don't think impeachment is the path. I think let justice be done. If not for him, he may still think he's above the law and still think he's he's untouchable. But it, his his three kids are on the on the radar now too. Well, absolutely. How could they not be? Just even in this foundation case, if you're on a board of a foundation, you have a fiduciary responsibility to not have these things happen. Right? I mean, like you can pick any of these cases, and because Trump was so insistent on melding his family, on not you know taking his business and putting it in a blind trust of continually keeping everything enmeshed, everything is enmeshed, and it, it's the fruit of his own tree. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. More to come, as they say. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, been an up and down year from uh, the economy standpoint, especially here in Canada. We've had, you know, the negotiations for NAFTA. Was that ever going to happen? Uh, the tariffs, a number of things. And you're always concerned about how business is responding to this. I mean, let's face it. They're the people, the employers. They're the ones that are making the investments. Well, there is a way to quantify that, and uh, it's a, a report that's actually done by the Export Development Canada Group, and uh, the latest one is out right now, and, uh, well, they, they seem to sort of like the New Deal, the uh, the Kuzma deal, the son of NAFTA, as it were, but there's a lot of concerns still to go. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome Stephen Tapp to the program. Stephen is a Deputy Chief Economist with Export Development Canada. Stephen, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Kind of an up and down year for for the, uh, those that are in business right now, and and that's pretty much reflected in this. Uh, this there's one element of this that maybe want to explain right off the top, Stephen, to our listeners uh, as, as a part of this. It's something you guys call the Trade Confidence Index. Maybe you could explain what that's about. Sure. Uh, so the Trade Confidence Index is something that Export Development Canada does. We do it twice a year. And we survey 1,000 Canadian exporters, and these are companies in Canada that are selling abroad. And the idea here is that we, we have trade data, so we, we know what's happening with cross-border trade. With a few months lag, 
But what we're trying to get is a sense from exporters is what they're thinking, their plans for the future, their international operations, what their outlook is, and how they're feeling about things like NAFTA, like steel tariffs, and, and those types of things. So it's, it's a bit different than the trade data, and it's more focused on forward-looking and emerging issues. And, and it's kind of attitudes, isn't it? I mean, in other words, it's, okay, how do you guys feel about all this stuff? Uh, and it's, it's not yeah. speculative, because they're the ones that are obviously looking at their bottom line. And, and, and to that point, Stephen, this has been a pretty rough year for the, for, for the economy in that particular fashion. There have been a lot of extraneous factors thrown at us. There's a lot of stuff going on. So it's, it's been a rough year if you follow the headlines and if you look at the, the tweets, or you, if you're following Donald Trump's tweets, uh, it's, been, it's been quite an interesting year. Um, there's a bit of a distinction between what's happened on, in Canada in terms of the export performance and what's happened in, in kind of the business press and the negotiations and headlines. So uh, one thing to say, so there's the survey part, but when we actually track the export data, as I mentioned before, what that is, is our exports are up 10%. Uh, this year relative to last year, and that's pretty surprising, yeah. uh, pretty strong performance. Like the U.S. economy is going gangbusters right now. It's doing quite well, and this is happening in spite of uh, what we're seeing with some of the tariffs back and forth and some of the concerns about negotiations. Yeah, there's a number of different factors here. Maybe we can go through some of these. You mentioned domestic sales, domestic economic conditions, but export sales, and, and that's a, that's an important stat here when you look at at the Canadian performance, isn't it, Stephen? We are an exporting nation. I mean, we we need that to survive. Yeah, this, the, our, our country, we have a, a relatively small, I mean, it's a very geographically very large country, but we're a relatively small market, and the ability to sell our goods and services abroad really maintains our standards of living. So, uh, it, it's important. Uh, you mentioned the Canadian export outlook part. So we, we ask a series of questions, and we've been doing this survey uh, for about 20 years now. And part of that just looks at, for the exporting side, what do they think is going to happen in the next six months for their export sales? It's sort of, sort of a short-term, uh, forward-looking indicator for us. And we have 64% of the respondents said they think their exports are going to be stronger in the next six months. Uh, that's higher than it's been really at any point in the business cycle other than the last survey. So things are, things are really pretty solid, pretty strong. Uh, they're just they're coming down a little bit from when we did the survey uh, at mid year. I'm kind of surprised by that. I want you to comment on that because there was a, an, an era not too many years ago uh, where free trade was was the, the the order of the day. I mean, you know, governments were looking for deals, you know, intercontinental deals, etc. But there's been a trend, especially in the last couple of years, for more protectionist uh, economic outlooks. Uh, the United States obviously is pretty much leading the way, but we've also seen it from some of the other nations. Uh, uh, I would have thought that would have had an impact on an, a negative impact on some of the optimistic views that people had. Uh, it's it's having an impact for sure. It's definitely impacting strategies. So that that was one of the issues, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, U.S. trade policy has been a bit more aggressive and a bit more erratic over the last while well, since Donald Trump has come into power. So that that was a question we we occasionally add questions on to just get a sense of an exporter's mindsets and their sentiments. So we did ask a question. And it said, is increased protectionism uh, internationally, is that affecting your company's strategy? And we had basically a third of, a third of Canadian exporters said yes. Uh, protectionism is an issue for them. And it's changing what they're thinking of doing and how they're operating. So uh, you're, right, you're right to say that protectionism is, is on the radar screen. And it, like I mentioned before, it's, it's definitely in the headlines, it's in the press. Uh, and it, it's affecting companies' bottom lines for sure. One of the ways that people are, are being impacted by this is through higher tariffs. Yeah. So uh, we, we can maybe into this kind of later as we go, but uh, there are tariffs in place on steel and aluminum products, and that's something that uh, companies are, are concerned about. Uh, 
there's there's been a bit more push for in the U.S. things like buy local or buying American uh, as opposed to looking to buy foreign. So that's been a bit of a challenge. But I mentioned you know, the offsetting factor is while the U.S. is is in some sense at least the administration looking inwards, uh, their economy is doing really well, and because the economy is doing well, they're they're still buying a lot of our goods and services. But there's still a concern about tariffs, and we anticipated that. I mean, especially here in southern Ontario, in the Hamilton area, uh, you know, the steel and, and aluminum tariffs are going to have a negative impact, and we're starting to see that now. They they, they had orders, I guess, that had yet to be filled uh, initially, but this is dragging on, I think, a lot more than people had thought. Uh, I guess the good news, uh, Stephen, there's only about a handful of economists in North America that think the tariffs are a good thing. Uh, the bad news is they all seem to work for Donald Trump. Uh, and and yeah. and that seems to form the policy right now. But but we've got to find a way to deal with this because I don't know that they're going to go away anytime soon. Uh, well, you're right about that. So I, I was down actually in, in Niagara region in in, uh, in Hamilton region talking, and so uh, in steel and aluminum uh, areas where you know th- this type of trade, this type of activity is is extremely important and, and concentrated. Uh, this is a top concern. So you, you mentioned, I guess, on the bright side though, if you look back to 2018. Uh, the NAFTA negotiations, which took about 14 months, and there were kind of rolling uh, windows of times where people thought it might wrap up, it might conclude, or, or things may be worse. Uh, we have a deal. So we have this, what, what I think now we're calling the CUSMA deal, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement. Uh, the U.S. has called it the USMCA, so they kind of the, the U.S. first uh, angle. But uh, I think that's something which overall exporters in general are quite happy because they were dealing with a, with an elevated level of uncertainty. They didn't know for sure uh, what the what the future of North American trade rules would be, and having a deal in place is is good for them. Uh, the the downside of that is in that negotiation, uh, it appears that that President Trump was using the steel and aluminum tariffs as as a way to try to extract concessions from Mexico, from Canada, and from other countries. So we still we were able to wrap up the deal, uh, and the negotiation process is done, and they're they're trying to to forward this into law, but. Uh, what we don't have is, is reprieve on these steel aluminum tariffs. So I can just tell you, uh, that was another question we added on the survey to say, what is the impact of steel aluminum tariffs on Canadian exporters? And, and here the numbers are similar, uh, but very high. It's about one-third of exporters said the impact has been negative uh, for them. So that's that's a pretty big number. Yeah. And in fact, uh, when I compared that to the to the NAFTA side, the concerns that we, we were tracking in NAFTA negotiations, uh, the worries about the steel aluminum tariffs are, are on par, maybe a little, a little bit higher. So that, that's a, yeah, it's a big number. It's interesting, too, that uh, a story I was reading, I guess it was in the Financial Post yesterday, uh, said the pressure actually to try to relieve these tariffs, uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs, is not just coming from the Canadian government. There are a number of states down there that deal with Canada on, a, on an ongoing basis, uh, and they're the ones that are encouraging the White House to get rid of these because it's having a ne- negative impact on their economy as well. Yeah, it's, uh, so we, we went beyond the sort of question, does, does it matter, what's the impact? The impact's negative, but then we tried to ask, what are you doing about it? And uh, this is the interesting part, including from, from discussions I had with, with folks in steel aluminum down, down in your part of the country. Um, there's different ways to, to address this, and it depends on how long you think these tariffs will be in play. So this first came in in, in, in June, and initially Canada and Mexico and some of the other allied European other other countries were exempted. Uh, well, it started in March, and then it came on to hit us in June. Uh, Canada responded, as did a bunch of other countries, with some tariffs to retaliate uh, on products and steel aluminum products against the U.S. and some other products as well. Um, but, but what people have done about it is, in some sense, prices have increased. So the, the cost of doing business, 
for the same producing the same output, producing the same types of goods and services has increased. And so, if, if you're a middle you know middle person or a buyer, uh, you may hope you can pass that on. So, if if the the tariffs on steel are 25 percent, tariffs on aluminum are 10 percent, and so we we have definitely seen costs increase and prices go up. Uh, in these markets, and of course, these are key inputs into other things. So, if you're building a car, if you have uh, uh, any aluminum that's that's in appliances and other things, that's increasing the price, you know, further on down down the road. And uh, consumers are starting to feel the pinch a bit, and, and they don't like it. What about regional disparity, Stephen? I know that's been a concern for many, many years here. Some it always seems that when one part of the country is doing reasonably well, there's always somebody who's falling short. Uh, and, and obviously, we know the Ontario economy has rebounded a little bit, uh, not to the extent I'm sure we'd like to see. But with the, there are huge challenges out west, obviously, with fossil fuels, and, and that's got to have a negative impact on the, on the overall numbers. Uh, no, you're right. We, we uh, look at breaking this up by region of the respondents, and, and exporters are definitely, uh, in general, and the economy is, is doing worse, uh, particularly in Alberta, but in western Canada is, is not doing as well. Uh, that's picked up in our numbers. So in, in out west, uh, the numbers are, are lowest. Uh, we had the most uh, optimism in uh, basically east of Ontario. So Qu- Quebec is the highest, and Atlantic Canada is, is doing well above average. Uh, the Ontario economy and Quebec economy, they've, they've done quite well this year. And I mentioned that's in part tied to, to the strong U.S. economy that, again, in spite of all the, the mayhem that's happening on trade policy, uh, orders are still coming in and people are still filling them and businesses are, are, are still busy. Um, but there was a certain certain sense in which energy prices have uh, been depressed over the last little while and there is a discount now applied mainly to Canadian uh, crude oil and that's that's been problematic uh, for sure in Alberta. Yeah, which brings up the whole debate about pipelines. I don't think we're going to go too deeply into that, but I mean that's obviously, if not the solution, certainly part of the solution for getting that product to a different market, really. Uh, I think most people in the industry are certainly in Alberta, are, are pushing and, and hoping that there will be pipeline capacity or, or different ways to get product to market. In the interim, they're looking at things like uh, buying rail cars and trying to ship uh, ship product that way. Um, we Well, I'm, I'm at Export Development Canada, and we were actually part of a, a package that was announced uh, yesterday. There's about $1.6 billion of government uh, support programs overall, and, and EDC uh, is responsible for about $1 billion of that. And, and what that's focused on really is uh, hopefully short-term financing uh, that will allow some companies to, to get through the hard times, but also looking to diversify markets and, and increase innovation and, and uh, reduce uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. So I think there there certainly are challenges, but people are, are hoping that uh, support can, can get through a rough patch here. There's another element to this that doesn't get a whole lot of play, but I know that you've talked about this, uh, the agency's talked about this in the past, and and, uh, and the federal government certainly seems to be on side, is uh, we, in fact, do have a skilled labor shortage. Uh, I think that's something which which comes through in our survey as well. So exporters, again, are, are doing reasonably well right now, and they're looking to hire. Uh, we had about half of exporters in the survey are planning to, to increase employment over the next six months. And again, when we look back at, at the overall series uh, since we've done the survey, this is a pretty high point. So you know, having half of exporters, that means we're getting close to uh, the amount that people can produce and kind of constraints on capacity. Um, but... In terms of hiring, they want to hire, but they're telling us that they're having some difficulty accessing more skilled labor. And uh, the Bank Canada does a survey as well where they, they ask businesses 
uh, beyond exporters, but more generally in Canada. And both of those signs of, of a more tighter, tighter labor market and more difficulty hiring labor are, are coming through. So I think that's at a national level. And, and we mentioned before, there may be some differences. Certainly, it's, it's a, a tougher labor market if you're, in, if you're at West right now. But in the rest of the country, uh, things are, are getting uh, tighter. And, and we're hoping and looking to see some, some wage gains. Uh, for employees, and, and uh, that, that overall should be a good thing to increase their purchasing power. Well, and it's a matter of preparing the workers of tomorrow, I guess, and that gets into tech and, and, and industries and, and education. And I know there's a lot of collaboration going on now between learning institutions and, and the business world, and hopefully that's going to pay some dividends. Now, let me ask you now, we, we've talked about the trade deal more than a couple of occasions here. Uh, it's not been ratified by the Canadian Parliament yet. It's not been ratified by the Congress, and we're not sure when that's going to happen. Uh, if that should happen, though, if all the, the, the ducks are get lined up in a row here, how important is that for stability and, and confidence building with the Canadian economy, Stephen? Uh, I think it's incredibly important. So I mentioned before that these negotiations were taking place over about a 14-month period. I think there was a, a big concern at various points that we might not have a trade deal. Uh, Donald Trump had, had threatened to uh, withdraw the U.S. from the NAFTA deal. Uh, so I guess one thing to clarify is the, the current NAFTA, like the North American Free Trade Agreement, is in place right now. It yeah. remains in place, but it will be replaced by what we're calling the CUSMA now, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico Agreement. And like I said, having having that agreement is a good thing. Uh, we asked exporters what they thought of it, and on, on general, I think it's in part, for some sectors, it's really early in the game. So we have concluded negotiations, and there's some legal text that's uh, thousands of pages that people can look through if they want to. Um, but these these uh, laws are, have not been changed and they're not in place yet. So I think it's a little bit early for most companies to really form their, their view of, of, uh, of what the deal is and what they think about it. But I think compared to the alternative of not having a deal in place in North America, uh, this is it's incredibly important for us. I mean, the U.S. is our biggest trading partner, and having some stability and, and certainty on what the rules of the game are uh, is is crucial. Well, and that's that's business 101, isn't it, to make sure there's some stability as soon as things get a little rickety and, and, and unsure of themselves. I mean, that's when businesses tend to say, okay, let's let's just hold off on investment right now until we see how this goes. So that, that's got to be a major factor, I think, to give them some sense that, okay, it's going to be okay for the next few years anyway. Yeah, that's, that's what we've seen. So we, we were asking people what they were, companies, what they were doing uh, in response to this. And, and uh Looking mainly at, on the investment side, you have to have, and this is the thing about, about uh, trade confidence, is that if you're going to make a, a decision for, let's say, three to five years, or if you're going to build a plant or hire people, uh, you want to have, have certainty and you want to know the economy is going to be strong. So on one of the things you can, you can do is continue to fill orders or, or not hire people, um, but at some point you need to make those investments. So investments were something that we were, were finding that during the NAFTA negotiations, uh, companies were telling us, you know, they had these plans in, in place, they might want to do them, but they were holding off because they didn't really know what the, what the rules would be. Uh, so what we've seen during the negotiations and then after the conclusion of the negotiations is a lot of those people that said they were going to delay investment, uh, there's, there's, much, there's far fewer of those folks that are just kind of waiting on the sidelines. So our sense is that this is going to really reactivate some of that investment that was just kind of waiting on the sidelines. Uh, it's going to increase investment, and, and uh, that's a good thing for the economy because we need to increase our capacity to be able to reach these foreign markets and, and uh, support our living standards. So as we head into 2019, uh, are we in Canada feeling pretty bullish about the economic forecast? Uh, I think we characterized it yesterday as, as, uh, as solid. Uh, it's a good outlook. It's a strong outlook. There are some of these clouds on the horizon. I think people are concerned about 
what's happening with uh, the U.S. and China, and there are some tariffs that are kind of threatened, already in place, and some that are threatened to increase. So there, there is some concern in the general um, global trade architecture, you know, how, how well that's going to hold and, and what's going to happen if, if the two largest economies in the world uh, have a full-fledged uh, fight about, about commerce, that that's going to have spillover impacts for Canada. But I, I think when we look through the data that has come in and we look through expectations, uh, certainly 2019 is, is looking like it's going to be another, another good year, another solid year for Canadian uh, economy and for exporters. Stephen Tapp, uh, Deputy Chief Economist with Export Development Canada. Stephen, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.